This is the Holy Gospel of our Lord Jesus Christ, according to St. Luke. Then he spoke a parable to them that men always ought to pray and not lose heart, saying, There was in a certain city a judge who did not fear God nor regard man. Now there was a widow in that city, and she came to him, saying, Get justice for me from my adversary. And he would not for a while. But afterward, he said within himself, Though I do not fear God nor regard man, Yet because this widow troubles me, I will avenge her, lest by her continual coming she weary me. Then the Lord said, Hear what the unjust judge said. And shall God not avenge his own elect who cry out day and night to him, though he bears long with them? I tell you that he will avenge them speedily. Nevertheless, when the Son of Man comes, will he really find faith? On the earth, the gospel of the Lord. I invite you to be seated. In the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Spirit. Amen. Well, several years ago, there was a young clergyman who had been looking for ministry work, and he was at the home of a priest talking about some potential job opportunities in that particular diocese. The young clergyman was excited about working in that diocese because they had similar goals in the church and they loved the same forms of worship. But at a certain point, the priest tells the young clergyman, well, you know, every year all of us priests and deacons, we go out together and we go hunting. We're a huge Second Amendment type of folks around here and we don't want those liberals to take away our guns. Now, the young clergyman who is a little bit more supportive of some restrictive, a little bit more restrictive gun policies, laughed really awkwardly. Uh, and then after the coffee, he thanked the priest for the time together. And then he never looked for jobs in that diocese again. There was a common culture that had been set up in that diocese. And it wasn't about the gospel. It was outside the gospel, extra gospel, if you will. And it had made that diocese lose an opportunity to be shaped and grow um, from somebody else coming in with a slightly different viewpoint. Exclusive cultural boundary markers can keep people away from the church. At least half the people around us, everywhere where we live, where we work, exercise, or hang out, half the people around us don't find the church to be necessary or even helpful as a community to belong to. I was reading this week a lot about different reasons that people are leaving the church or just don't want to belong to the church. And there were two overarching reasons. And in one research study, um, they, as they went through this, they realized that the two main reasons are people find God elsewhere or they believe that the church is not relevant to them personally. And there are a lot within those. There are a lot more granular reasons that we could drill down to within those. 
about the ways that people have been hurt by the church, about the needs that people have that the church isn't meeting, the ways which people don't feel connected to a local community. But one of the problems that the church faces as an institution is that people outside don't see it as a movement, a movement of a community that's being transformed by the love and the grace of Jesus Christ. The struggle for unity in Christ together is actually an incredible testimony to Jesus's power to the world. There's one pastor, a pastor in New York City named John Tyson, who was reflecting on that study. And it's sort of a long quote from him, but I love where he talks about, about this particular problem. He says, in contrast to the early church, we live in one of the most well-resourced Christian cultures in history. Think about the ease, the access, the cultural privilege with which we American Christians find ourselves today. We can get any number of Bible translations at a Walmart or a dollar store. Podcasts are readily available from the most gifted and popular Bible teachers. We can watch video sermons, listen to live worship albums, and read in-depth studies in Greek and Hebrew. And a lot of us have Bible software, entire collections of Bible software on our phones. We have Bible conferences, church growth conferences, denominational conferences, leadership conferences, missional conferences, church planting conferences, and even conferences for pastors and people who don't like church. The early church leaders didn't have the things that we now consider essential for the faith. They didn't have official church buildings, vision statements, or core values. They had no social media, radio broadcasts, or celebrity pastors. They didn't even have the completed New Testament. Christ followers were often deeply misunderstood, persecuted, and some gave their lives for the faith. Yet they loved, they served, they prayed, and they blessed. And slowly, over hundreds of years, they brought the empire to its knees. They did it through love. Part of the problem is that the church is often confused on what it means to be a transformed community. Is it supposed to be a community of social action? In that case, maybe if we exist to do good in the world, then people will find us attractive. Is it supposed to be a place of fun and refreshment, a social club? If we can have the best attractions or throw the best social events and provide rest for people, people will come to us. Is it supposed to be a classroom? a community where all of us are pupils. And in that case, we're just assuming the world doesn't have the right facts. If we can get the right data and show people how right we are, then people will seek after Jesus. And while there is a small nugget of truth in each one of those things, it's really the church as a movement that attracts people to Christ. It's when the church seeks after those who we consider to be those people, to transform them into the people through Christ in community. Peter was facing this problem when we get to Acts 10 and Acts 11, where this question arises about what kind of community is the church supposed to be? In Peter's recounting of this narrative of Gentile inclusion into the church, we find God creating this other-focused community a kingdom where Jesus is king, where no citizen is unclean, 
anymore, but everyone is joined together in love. There's an important reminder in here for today's church, I think. And it's that the church should constantly be growing in what it means to take whoever are considered those people and receive them as the people through the gospel. We offer this special place where people can struggle through difficulty, through doubt, difference, abuse, dysfunction, in community, where there's an expectation of love, forgiveness, grace, and charity. And in this cultural moment, where identity politics is the modus operandi of normal community discourse, the church has this amazing opportunity to teach those outside how to become a different kind of country. It's the kind of country that's filled with citizens who serve the heavenly king, and they walk through difficulty and conflict together with the expectation of the grace and forgiveness that we have in Christ as the foundation of love that we have for one another. The church, when it actually learns to really become the church, will paint a compelling picture of the good news about Jesus. Because the gospel then is no longer just factually right, it actually becomes holistically reshaping us in community. So in Acts 11, Peter comes back to Jerusalem after he sees the Holy Spirit come upon the Gentiles. The Holy Spirit, the one who is indwelling the people of the heavenly kingdom, had come to the Jews back in Acts chapter 2. And then he came to the Samaritans in Acts chapter 8. And now he's coming to the Gentiles in Acts chapter 10. And Peter's recounting it in Acts chapter 11. The church kept on changing as new people kept coming in over and over again. Especially, I was thinking about the Samaritans in Acts chapter 8. The Samaritans and the Jews, they didn't get along for ethnic, historical, religious, um, and cultural reasons that went really deep for hundreds of years. But faith in Christ and being filled with the Holy Spirit put them into the same community together. And I'm certain people outside were looking going, how's this going to work out? Jerusalem had become now the center of, the, of institutional power for this new movement, making sure that the message went out properly and that the movement was sustainable. So I don't want to be down on institutions completely. There's this healthy heuristic circle and interplay that happens between the freshness of a movement and the need for institutionalization. It's one that we find throughout church history across the world. The problem in an institution becomes the ways that it exists for itself, the ways that it shuts out outsiders, the ways that it keeps itself barricaded to try and preserve itself. The problem with a movement, of course, is the question of how consistent it actually is when it goes out, or is it going to be sustainable? Both of them work together. The followers of Jesus that are in Jerusalem, they hear that these Gentiles receive the word of God. The Gentiles, these pagans who knew nothing about Moses' law, who knew nothing about Jesus, were now believing in their Lord. And that was actually really exciting. They were excited about hearing this news. But despite that excitement, they're not happy with Peter. They ask him this question, did you really go to the uncircumcised and eat with them, these Gentiles? The problem 
was not that Gentiles were coming to faith. It was that Peter was going to eat with them. It's a big difference. So even if they believed in Jesus, they were still actually unclean. And Peter should know better than to risk polluting himself by having too much time with those people. There were different views among different Jewish groups about how to relate to Gentiles in Peter's time. But all Jewish groups had a fear of contamination from Gentile uncleanness. It wasn't inherent because of who they were ethnically, but it was because of their association with idolatry and with paganism. It's not that the Jews that followed Jesus were xenophobic. That's not how I'm reading it. I think that they were just really afraid of pagan influence coming into the church. In their paradigm, in their way of thinking, there's no way to think about a Gentile without thinking of all the idolatry that's interwoven into the fabric of who they are as pagans. So the issue facing the church as an institution in Acts 11 is how, how are Gentiles supposed to come into faith in this Jewish Messiah and to be one community with these Jews and Samaritans? There was a legitimate fear. And the fear was that those people, if they were let into the same body of faith, without adopting the common culture that was there, then they would fundamentally change the institution. And guess what? Those fears were absolutely right. And actually, that's St. Luke's point, that this was God's plan all along. So when Peter recounts the story, back to this group in Jerusalem, it's almost like he's telling them this. Listen, guys, I know it sounds crazy. I didn't make it up. I wouldn't have been okay with it either. I get it. It's normal. It defies, it's, it's really abnormal. It defies all of my expectations. And that's why I didn't make it up. God's the one who did this, not me. So he recounts this strange dream. He starts going in order. There's a strange dream where this thing like a four-cornered sheet comes down and there's these animals on it and they're unclean. And God tells him, get up, go, kill, eat. Peter objects and says, no way. I've never done that. I'm not going to start now. God says, listen, what God has made clean, do not call common. The story begins with God, who was about to do something that felt very new and it felt very uncomfortable for a lot of people. God's promise of blessing has always had Gentiles in mind. And Jesus in his death and in his resurrection was constituting a brand new community, someone who is greater than Moses, who achieves the invitation to the all in a very different way than Moses did. So that the old boundary markers that existed, those of um, circumcision, purity laws, those were now problematic and they were actually inappropriate for this new community. It's what Peter needed to learn It's what he needed to go teach others as well. So God was doing this. God was creating a brand new boundary marker and all were now one in baptism and not in circumcision and the law. So one scholar writes about this, baptism is an outward rite that constitutes a distinctive identity marker for the reconstituted people of God. As this group hears Peter's story, Everyone falls silent. 
And then they glorify God. They acknowledge that God has given repentance to the Gentiles, the repentance that leads to life. It was this profound mystery, having Jews and having Samaritans in one community together. But the Holy Spirit was not done. And if you and I look around, I don't think that the Holy Spirit is done today. So who are considered to be those people? And why is it difficult for them to become the people with us? It's not talking about people who deny the faith or who willingly embrace things that are contrary to God's word or the teachings of the church, but those who because of cultural uh, difference or background, different political views, socioeconomic status, or different mental or physical ability look very different than what we might be tempted to call normal. If someone's baptized and they're following Christ, what would it look like for us to accept the people who are considered those people to be the people together with us and to let them expand our view of what the church could look like? The ability to slow down, to die to self, to die to a common culture allowed the church in Acts chapter 11 to see how the Holy Spirit was changing the shared culture among them to reshape the institution, to reestablish the boundary markers for the community. The ones considered those people became the people together with these groups that never should have been associated with one another ever. And that was probably a painful and an awkward process as these groups walked together in the unity that they had in Christ. But that's what allowed the church to be a movement that made Jesus attractive. And it brought Roman, the Roman Empire to its knees. So I think St. Peter's story encourages us. It encourages us to listen to God's faithfulness in other Christians from various parts of the church. Are we hearing God's faithfulness from minority ethnic churches, from mainline churches, from large evangelical churches, from Roman Catholic churches, from Eastern Catholic churches, from Orthodox churches? God is at work bringing people to himself in all of these places. And we get to listen for their stories. This story also helps the church in a few important ways. Think first, it slows things down in all of the right ways. Everyone now has to contemplate why the community does what it does, why it says what it says, the ways that it thinks. And inevitably, as new people are coming in and the community is contemplative and thinking about all the ways that it exists, some things will change over time as the community sifts through what is part of the faith and what is just part of a common culture. And that's actually happening even now. If we think of the Amazon and recent news with the Roman Catholic Church questioning the requirement for clerical celibacy, there's this problem where people are coming to faith. A lot of people are coming to faith in the Amazon. And now there's this problem. We don't have enough priests. It's a great problem to have. So new people are coming in. They're having to rethink things. Second, when the church becomes a unifying agent for disparate groups, those outside are going to marvel and wonder at its mystery and at the goodness of its Lord. Yesterday, uh, Clayton and um, Nancy and I were all at 
the Green Valley neighborhood, and we had a chance to go walk and pray through Green Valley yesterday in South Arlington. And we were marveling at how diverse that space was. It was amazing to see how many different diverse groups of people there were all over the place and new people coming in. And I was starting to think about, you know, what would it look like to have substantial unity between these groups in Christ? Well, it takes a lot of listening and it takes a lot of dying to self and it takes a lot of dying to a shared culture. And I enjoy those prayer walks because for about an hour every month, I get to be really uncomfortable um, for, for about that, that hour and, and just listen, listen to God, listen to the needs of the community around me. So as we can cl- conclude this evening, there's going to be a few minutes of silence after I stop talking. Um, and in those moments, take those moments to ask God what he might be speaking to us um, as we've heard from God's word this evening. Let's remember that as a church, we ought to focus more on the quality of the community that we have um, rather than just asking people to come through the doors. The Holy Spirit is constantly at work reforming and reshaping the church, bringing all kinds of people into communion together through their shared identity in Christ. The church should constantly be growing in what it means to take those people, whoever those people are, and receive them as the people together through the gospel of Jesus Christ. When we grow in becoming the people together, when we love, when we serve, when we pray, when we bless, that makes Christ compelling to a world that longs for the Holy Spirit to bring repentance unto eternal life. Let's pray. Lord Jesus Christ, you stretched your arms of love on the hard wood of the cross so that everyone might come within the reach of your saving embrace. So clothe us in your spirit that we reaching forth our hands in love may bring those who do not know you to the knowledge and the love of you for the honor of your name. Amen.